Marcelo. Um, I work for a company called Telecare Corporation. I don't know if you guys know Telecare. Uh, I, I oversee the community side of community programs for Telecare. Telecare has actually two uh, big sides. Uh, one side is the inpatient side, which is the lock facilities, which is maybe you more familiar with, unfortunately. Uh, which is La Casa, which is a large mental health rehab place with over 150 people that they're locked in there. And it's kind of like an IMD, although we don't like the word IMD, Institute for Mental Diseases. It's, it's it, you know, it's a long term, people stay for years sometimes. At Telecare, uh, uh, we, we, we tend to have shorter stay than other places. So they will stay with us maybe nine months, and in other places they can stay up to 10 years. And in La Casa campus, we also have an urgent care, which is a, a, a 24 hour, no, 23 hours and 15, 59 minutes of services. They cannot stay 24 hours, but they can stay all the way to the last minute. And you guys know urgent care. And then we also have a, what is called PUF, which is a psychiatric hospital, which is like any other hospital. You know, you stay for like, you know, three to two, three days to two weeks. And then if you have, put in, in, in temporary conservatorship, then you stay another 14 days, and then if you go for conservatorship, then you stay there until you get placed. That's the inpatient side. We also have a large IMD and SNF, skilled nurse facility, and lock facility for older people and people with medical problems. It's called La Paz. There's over 150 people also. It's a lock facility. Those are the inpatient side. That's not the side that I'm talking much about today. I oversee the, the community side of programs. So we have four FSPs. Each FSP serves anywhere between 150 to 200 people. One is an adult FSP. One is an FSP for downtown LA and Hollywood. Here we, here we are representing. Uh, and then there's, there's two FSPs in, uh, in Southeast LA, East LA. And uh, besides FSPs, we also have the R3 or RRR or R or whatever you want to call it. It should be called FCCS, right? Uh, we have one in downtown, one in East LA. We also have a step down, which is the enhanced residential services, which is the ones that you come out from a, a lock facility like La Casa La Paz, an IMD. You're not ready for an FSP yet, you go to the step down. Step down, you go to a, a place and you get seen every day until you're ready to go to an FSP. We have a large one. We also have PI, Preventional Intervention. And we have probably the largest AB 109 program in the state of California. We serve over uh, uh, 600 people uh, in our AB 109 program. And we also have Forensic FSP, AOT, MIST, and I'm sure I'm forgetting some stuff. Those are the DMH programs that I oversee. I also oversee a contract with the Department of Corrections. Those are for paralysis, people coming out of prison. We serve 200 people coming out of prison. That's not DMH, that's straight with corrections. We also have a contract with uh, Kaiser. Uh, and I'm also the regional director for North Carolina. So I have one program in Durham. We serve 200 people. I go there every other month. If any of you is from Dur Durham, or like to move back to Durham, or, or you want to go to Durham, hook me up. I, there's, we're always looking for people to work for us in Durham. So that's, a, you know, that's telecare. I'm a, so I'm, I'm, as you'll notice, I have an accent. I'm, I'm from Brazil. I'm Brazilian. I'm, a, I'm descendant from the South American Indians that live in the, in the, in the extreme south. Um, 
I moved to US in 1990. I used to be a child psychologist in Brazil. Um, I moved here to do a PhD in linguistics at the University of Utah. I hate it. Uh, I walk out and I became a legal alien. So I used to be a, a supervisor child psychologist in Brazil. A year later, I was a dishwasher, dishwasher a sizzler in Salt Lake City. And I used to tell all the dishwashers and cooks, I'm actually a psychologist. <laughs> and they would say, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, got back on my feet. I'm now an American citizen. They'll go call the ice. I know someone already getting into calling the ice on me. I'm, I'm good now. Um, I became, uh, I, I still work with kids in Utah, and then I moved to California in 1990. I work in San Diego in crisis centers. I, I, I speak Spanish as well. So I, spoke, I, I work with folks that monolingual Spanish-speaking people in crisis. And I started running crisis centers in San Diego in the 90s, moved to LA, and I was part of the, the beginning of the AB 2034. I don't know if anybody was around back then, 99. We started a homeless program, which is like the, the, the OG FSP, right? So it was the, the godfather of the FSP. AB 109 became uh, uh, ACT. ACT became FSP. Before it online, there was something called Partners, which we had here. It was the first FSP type of program. 1986, uh, the village was one of the first places. Um, and then I, I started running programs for telecare in East LA, and now I, I run the community programs for telecare in LA and Carolina. So that's a little bit about me. Um, I myself was... Uh, um, I work a lot with the forensic side because I myself, as a teenager, I got in trouble with the law, so I was incarcerated many times, uh, and I was addicted to drugs, and so I, I got out of that life, and because of that, I kind of focused my, throughout all my life, work with people that are formerly incarcerated, so that's kind of my expertise. But what are we going to talk? What I want to talk to you guys today is to telecare as a company. We are in Nebraska, we're in Carolina, we're in Oregon, Washington, Arizona, and mostly California. We're very California-centric. Most of our programs are in California. Uh, this is our system. This is how we work with folks, how we work with people with mental illness. So to get you moving a little bit, since you ate a very nice breakfast, I'm going to ask you some questions and. Uh, the only thing you have to do is that if your answer is yes, I will ask you to please get up. If your answer is no, you stay seated. Okay? Who, uh, some, some you cannot lie, who here has a tattoo? Please get up. If you have a tattoo, get up. All right, please sit down. Thank you. Uh, who here ever kiss a person that you really didn't like it? <laughs> Who kissed someone that you really did not like it? All right. Uh, more like a, not like a, the one that you give to your daughter. You're like, <laughs> good, sit down. Thank you. Who, uh, who here ever uh, took uh, work supplies home, even a pan or a post-it thing. All right. Can you please not film this part? <laughs> all right, thank you. Uh, he's going to be sending the link to all your uh, supervisors. <laughs> uh, who here ever spent a night in a hospital, overnight in a hospital? 
Look around. Please sit down. Whoever got in trouble with the law, even a speeding ticket. Whoa. All right. Damn, you guys are <laughs> ninjas. Um, who in this room ever been in a situation like this with a bunch of people and you felt that you did not belong? So those are, you know, the idea of those questions is that, um, so at Telecare, we believe that the people that we serve are people like us. Uh, and we connect with people, not through our head, but with our heart. And we connect with people because the feelings they feel are the same feelings that you feel. If you ask, I don't know if you could do this group for this uh, exercise with your clients, and I'm sure if you ask uh, some of these questions, you know they've been hospitalized, they've been in jail, uh, uh, and it would be interesting to do this exercise where you answer at the same time, so you can connect with people, because we believe that if uh, what's your name, Lisa. Lisa, if I see Lisa as an schizophrenic person. I can connect with Lisa. If I see Lisa as Lisa, as a person, I might connect with her. We both have uh, no, uh, uh, Indian, uh, um, I don't know how to say that in English, uh, no. an arrow tattoos. Hey, we might have same interest by Indian culture. I don't know. Maybe we both like sushi. Maybe we both like Game of Thrones. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> there's, you know, so as more I see myself in. Long Zock on the beach. I'm, I'm actually very allergic to sand and stuff, so I don't like that stuff. Long walks around the pool, maybe. Uh, so as more I see Lisa, less of this I become. Because this is how a mental health person sees you when they come. Someone with a mental illness, this is how they see you when they come to your office. I'm Marcelo Cavallero, MFT, PhD. LSD, you know, like people like to, as, as people like to put a lot of letters after the name to see how powerful they are. And I have pictures of my kids, and you know, I'm you know I'm usually well dressed. Um, and this guy's like disheveled, homeless, you know. So this is how you see. So the more personal we become, more we see that we're just a person, and we can connect in this level. And I'll even go further. There's a program in Nebraska that the director of the program is a locked facility. They come in for, they get locked up. But the time they're locked up, the first question they ask the person coming in is, for the time that you're going to be with us, what are you going to teach us? That's the first question. So if you start with that way, you're not even here. You're less than. The person is actually the one that knows it. So, the idea, our idea is that the individual is the specialist. They know them. And if you can connect with them, nothing's going to happen. You guys know that half of the people that go to therapy, half of the people that go to therapy do not go back for the second session. 50% of people give up because they don't connect with the therapist. So um, go to a lot of trainings like this. 
get your degrees. I'm not nothing against PhDs, and I have a PhD in Brazil. It didn't work here, but I have two <laughs> masters. Nothing against books and 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 CBT and DBT and all this evidence-based practice that you see. You know, do that stuff. But if you don't connect with the person, none of that's gonna help. The first thing is connect with the person at an individual level. So I brought some toilet paper <laughs> and some newspaper. I live in Culver City, so it's uh, my, my local newspaper. Um, so uh, the title of the presentation is Culture as a Primary Intervention. And you see a foreign guy with an accent. You think I'm going to talk about cultural competence. I'm not. First, the culture about uh, cultural competence is BS because nobody's competent in their own culture even. You know, it's all about cultural humility. And I'll talk maybe about cultural humility in here, but the idea of culture is this. Um, at Telecare, we believe that the environment, the culture, the place of work, it's already a primary intervention. Anybody been to Homeboy Industries downtown? Anybody, anybody have been to the village, MHALA? All right, Long Beach. Yeah. If you walk into Homeboy Industries, you walk into the village MHALA, you walk in those places, just by the fact that you're walking in the place, you're already getting healed. The culture of the place is already the first intervention. And those places, sometimes just by walking to that place, you're going to get more benefits than a lifetime of traditional uh, treatment. Because unfortunately, traditional treatment sometimes, and I'll show you, does more harm than good. So a place at Homeboy Industries, a place like uh, the village, it, like you say, is the village, is the environment that heals people. They see themselves in each other because there's tons of peers I mean, Homeboy Industries is pretty much all peers. The village is almost all peers. I have one of our AB Online programs. Uh, our AB Online program, so it was just one, is 100% peers. Everybody is a peer. Or a person with lived experience, meaning that, you know, you might be the doctor, you might be a nurse, you might be the receptionist, but you have a lived experience mental illness. You work in places like that, and it's because of the relationship. It's not necessarily the relationship they have with you. It's because of the relationship they have with each other. Right? A place like that, because you can walk into a place and uh, Jake might be really nice with me, like, you know, such a sweet guy, right? Uh, and then Jake turns around and he's an a hole to his co worker. I'm thinking, that is the true Jake right there. This Jake here is, is the Jake for a paycheck, right? He's being nice to me because that's his work. When he turns around and talks to Trish, that's the real Jake, right? <laughs> supervisors, you know, so supervisors are super nice with the clients, but they, they turn around, they're mean bosses. And they, you know, so clients, people of color, people with disability, minorities, they're extra sensitive to those type of stuff, to those type of body languages, right? Because they experience that in their life, right? So, uh, so that's why this today, it's about not as much of how, what do you do with the people out there when you go out. Our programs, most of them are 100% field based, so nobody actually comes to the office. 
Uh, even the psychiatrists, they go out and see people in their homes. So it makes it even difficult, more difficult because uh, you can make your office very welcoming with you know, pictures of people of color and all that, but you go out to the community, is the boarding care welcoming? Is the black church welcoming to people, uh, black folks with mental illness? Is the senior center welcoming to seniors with mental illness? Is the, is the temple welcoming to Jews with mental illness? Is the mosque welcoming to uh, Muslims with mental illness? Are they welcoming their own community? Often not, because they're seen as takers. Your job is very difficult. You have to turn someone from a taker to a giver. You know, you have to find their talent. Everybody has a passion. Everybody has a talent. You find that talent, and you take them back. Take them back home because you're not dumping them in a community. They're just going back home with a gift, right? So, but how this happens? How did someone get so smashed up by life that they are just like, uh, unfortunately, we are part of the problem. And it starts with the moment that someone gets diagnosed with a mental illness and the system takes over, right? Uh, who's a good, I used to be really good, but I lost my, who's good at making hats with newspapers? You want anybody? Try, anybody try. If you make the best one, you get out of the exercise. No, if you make the best hat, you make the best hat, you're going to choose who's going to be my, my exercise victim. So I just brought three pages. There we go. Let's see. Oh, very simple. Let's see, who follows instructions the best? <laughs> so this is a kid, as they make the hat, this is a kid, he's like 17, 18, right? He sees himself as, I don't know, a skater dude. Like, he's a skater, or a punk rock skater guy, right? So he's a punk rock skater. That's his identity. All right, this first one's out. How would you guys like it? That's good? I'm to All right. All right, we're going to go We're gonna go with yours. Is that cool? Is that cool? All right. So since you did it, you choose someone in the room to be the person that's going to wear the hat. <coughs> oh, hope it doesn't. Hope doesn't mess up your uh, your hair. Come on, come up. What's your name? Huh? Jessica. Jessica. Clap to Jessica. It's voluntary. There we go. All right. All right. So Jessica, no, stay here. It's gonna be more to it. All right. You're not too claustrophobic, are you? No. Okay, good. Because um, um, there's being a, you're gonna be mummified, very very lightly mummified with toilet paper. All right. So Jessica is. Uh, let's go back. And Jessica is 16, and she was. I don't know if you were a punk rocker when you were 16. What do you were like felt like when you're sure, 16? Punk rocker. <laughs> so that was her identity. She's 16. She's a punk rocker. And then she goes to a party, and someone drops some ecstasy in her beer, and she didn't know. She takes a she starts tripping out. Uh, everything's fine. She goes home. It's fine. Uh, but then two days later, she starts to like, hear something, and then she's like, nobody's there, you know. And it starts to get worse and worse. And then something just like, feels like there's shadows. And so mistake number one, I'm just joking. She goes to her parents, and 
share that with the parents. The parents are concerned, like any parent, they take her to Long Beach Mental Health, maybe. Where do you live? I'm in Long Beach. Oh, yeah, perfect. <laughs> wow, I didn't know that. I swear <laughs> I did not know that. So they take, to <laughs> uh, they take her to Long Beach Mental Health, um, and the psychiatrist is a very nice guy or lady. How sexist of me. Uh, <coughs> uh, diagnosed her with schizophrenia. And that's the hat. This is a schizophrenia hat, right? Yeah. Now, Jessica goes back to Long Beach High School. I don't know if there's a, such a thing. Uh, what do you think she's going to do? She's going to go back. She's going to go to her friends, punk rock friends and buddies, and say, guess what, guys? I'm schizophrenic. <laughs> no. That's not what she's going to do. It. Since you're part of this, come, Lisa, please come help. So you're going to hold this here. Hold, hold it to your heart. And Lisa, every time I tell you, you're going to go one around. Okay. okay? You're going to mummify her a little bit. Yeah. So the first thing she does when she gets the diagnosis is that she's, she doesn't know what schizophrenia is. So it's fear. One round for fear, please. What the hell is schizophrenia? What's going to happen to me? Right? Okay. Shame. She's not going to... One round for shame, please. She's not gonna go around. She's not gonna go around the school like, guess what? Schizophrenic, schizophrenic, right? Um, maybe Jessica thought, oh, you know, I, I wanna, I wanna be an architect when I grow up, like, you know, like my dad, or I wanna be an engineer, or can I be an engineer with schizophrenia? Can I be a mom with schizophrenia? Would my kid have schizophrenia? So I cannot have kids then? Let's do a couple for uncertain uncertain future and then loss of uniqueness when she goes back thank you she goes back to school maybe jessica was the kind of kid i was like kid i didn't like I, I still don't like people that much but i didn't like people and i like to stay like on my own I like to listen to heavy metal music i know i'm brazilian but i, I like to have metal uh you know just like on my own people thought i was just like a loner or you know Jessica, maybe she was a loner, or she liked to stay, to spend time alone, listen to music. From the moment she got the diagnosis, that is no longer a trait. It becomes a symptom. She's isolating. Uh, she's weird, you know. Uh, I don't know, maybe she had the punk rock uh, hair because she, was a, she liked punk rock music, but now... Oh, she shaves her head every time she has a psychotic break, you know. So everything that made Jessica different than the kid next to her, that was a personality trait, from that moment on becomes a symptom. Her future is pretty much doomed, right, from living in our culture. Uh, stigma, everywhere she goes, is almost you have like a, you know, I'm with stupid kind of thing, you know, like you have the stigma. People see her as a mental illness. They don't see her as Jessica. They see her as a mental health patient. For example, uh, from the moment she got diagnosed, she, you know, if she was not diagnosed, she would get a home. Since she was diagnosed, she would be housed. When she did not have diagnosed, she would have buddies and friends. With a diagnosis, she has peers, right? It's, a, it's funny because a, a, a friend of mine who's a peer, uh, he runs a peer network, Guyton, I don't know if you guys know him, he runs the Project Return. Uh, he said, <laughs> when mental health professors go out in a, in a 
go out and, and parties like a vacation. When peers go out, it's like a, an outing. <laughs> it's like, can we just have a party instead of an outing? Uh, hope and motivation. A schizophrenic person wakes up in the morning and what do you think is their motivation? Like she thinks, okay, I'm not going to be an architect. Why am I even going to school? Why am I even working? I'm going to end up in disability. A person that sees themselves as a schizophrenic makes different decisions in life than a person that sees themselves as a punk rocker, a musician, a, a soccer player, a teacher. And then loss of opportunities, right? She won't have the opportunity. She'll most likely drop out of school. She won't off, be offered jobs. And then here something happens, which I'm not going to go into it. I have a whole four-hour training on that, which is just as involved. About this time is that Jessica most likely get in trouble with the law because of her behaviors. And then, and depending on her, the color of her skin, depends on what zip code that she lives, depending of, of her socioeconomic status, she might get caught in that just as involved thing and jail, out of jail and mental hospital and jail and then she end up getting uh, services through the forensic side, right? So that's how our people end up at AB online programs and things like that, but I'm not gonna go in there. And then uh, she loses choice in making skills and here's the thing, you know, my kid uh, burning himself uh, cooking on the stove, I'm not just gonna say from the rest of your life you're only going to do microwave uh, we learn by screwing up how many, how many i can swear but how many people messed up in their lives how many people are fired for jobs right for messing up uh, uh, we all learn by messing up but once someone becomes part of the system mental health system the case managers start to make decisions for you right and you, it's not that you start to make bad choices. You start to lose your ability of choice make. You lose your choice making skills. You know, uh, uh, the I always messed up this. I'm hoping to mess up now. The grasshopper go to the masters and say, Master, you're so wise. How do I get wisdom? And he says, uh, um, experience. I said, oh, experience, and how do I get experience? Good choices. And it's like, oh, good choices, and how do I make good choices? Experience. I said, oh, experience, and how do I get that much experience? By making bad choices. So it's, it's by screening up that we learn. And we often make the choices for the client, and, and they lose their choice-making skills. We do that with the best intentions because we say they're going to make a bad choice. They made a bad choice before, they're going to make a bad choice again. Last time we gave her her full check, she went and blew it up on crack. Let's not give her a check again. Let's, let's give like five bucks a day, you know. You know. So as more we increase, and then as more we increase control, more the individual lose control. And the cycle is like this. It's like a, a child, right, that you put on, a, you put on time out for too long. They act up, and then you put their time out even longer, and then they act up even more, and then it just keeps it keeps in a cycle. So next time she loses control, she's starting to. Are you okay there? Yeah. Okay. Uh, last time she loses control, her case manager, you know, calls 5150. You know, she just got in an argument with a buddy at the 
boarding care should live, boarding care fix out, call you. You don't even go talk to her. You just call a 50 pet team, and she's next. You see, she's getting off, you know, locked up for three days on observation. You know. So life just keeps like that. And then she doesn't know how to make choices anymore because you've been making for them. And then I work with older adults for many years, and you see, with old, especially older adults that grew up in the system, they were Tay uh, FSP, not FSP, but the FSP didn't exist back then, but they got diagnosed at an early age, and they grew up in the system, and now they're 60, 70. First, they die really young because that crappy medications from back, you know, Thorazine and how that, that stuff that destroy your GI system, and you end up dying from other diseases. Uh, but the worst thing about the effect of traditional mental health treatments, including medication, is the is what's called the iatrogenic effect, which is I'll spell for you. Although English is my third language, so I should not be spelling it. But iatrogenic. That means the disease that you get from the treatment. I'm obsessive compulsive. I don't like to go to hospitals because I think I'm going to get a disease for whoever is next to me. Uh, so that's the idea. You go to the hospital to do a knee surgery and you get pneumonia. Pneumonia was the iatrogenic effect of your knee surgery. Side effects, the iatrogenic effect. People that spend all their lives taking antipsychotics and in locked hospitals, when you see them, you, you know, the, the rolling joint syndrome, you know, they're like this, right? They're always like this, or the, the tongue, right? So that's how you see. What you don't see is what they have done to their uh, brain, to their person. You know, they are institutionalized. Uh, they learn helplessness. You know, their life is being spending, coming up with stories at the nursing station to get a PRN. That's like 20 years doing that every day. I got a headache and I have a PRN. You know, that's their life. Uh, their life is full of harm. There's some psychosocial stressor that we never talk about, which is poverty. You know, these people live below poverty. Uh, I, I don't know. Maybe I, if I live that life, I most likely would be getting high all the time as well. Life would just be too much for me to deal with it. Uh, and there's no strength. So, but here's the thing. What's the illness? What's the disability? Almost, almost over. Um, tell me the name of a doc. Your doc of your clinic. Dr. Juros. Huh? Oh, you are a doctor. Yeah. Perfect. Sure. Here's the guy. So Jake, Dr. Juros. Yeah. Uh, he was so inspired by this presentation that he's gonna home, go home tonight and he's gonna create this pill. This like this little blue pill that you take it. And all mental health symptoms are gone. Schizophrenia will be gone. So, you know, just like the, you know, like the Prozac, that was when I moved to this country, you know, the Prozac advertisements. Other countries is against the law to advertise uh, psychotropic medication. And the Prozac is like, you know, the woman is like, is like I'm black and white, she's kind of disheveled, and it's like, yeah, you know, I'm depressed. And then she takes a Prozac, and then like psychedelic colors, gold retrievers come running. <laughs> Really beautiful husband comes around and hugs her from behind. <laughs> Grandkids and like, ah. so you think, oh, that's recovery. You just the blue pill. Well, let's say, let's say that Jake creates that, and Jessica takes the blue pill. 
hey, all symptoms are gone. Uh, all positive symptoms, right? The uh, hallucinations gone, uh, uh, delusions, everything's gone. All right. She's perfect, right? Yeah, we're done. We're done. Go home. Get a job. Right? No. Because this is the illness. This is the disability. And we, mental health professionals, help with that. Not just us, society in general, but we also did this. So let's do a little moment uh, of freedom here. So the loss of disabilities, you know, there's hope. That's the good news, that resilience, we can get that back. So let's, look, let's do a, a moment of freedom there. Go ahead and free yourself. There you go. All right. Let's clap. Good job, Jessica. Good job, Lisa, for being the, uh, the torturer for a while, the, the, the bondage guy. <laughs> yeah, thank you, thank you. Um, so resilience, right? So people, people do, despite all of this, people do survive. The, I love the LA County appears. They have the saying, this is like my favorite, they say, we recover despite mental health services. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in reality, in most of the world, most people do recover, uh, you know, reach, achieve some level of recovery. Not like cure of symptoms, but some type of recovery without actually any professional involvement, you know. Places like India, Brazil, and, uh, uh, you know. So, and the, uh, the ability, so we have the resilience, which is the ability to spring back and successfully adapt to diversity. Um, I always think about the forest fires here, you know, the, the California forest fire. So the forest has small natural fires all the time. So they burn the dry leaves, right? The forest burn the dry leaves by having fires here and there. Then Homo sapiens, not the sapiens, uh, move in, build a house right next to the cool forest, you know, first time. I tell like every time that happens in a meeting, you have to get up on top of the table and dance to the tune of the... Uh, <laughs> it makes really fun meetings. <coughs> so uh, the, the, the uh, forest has the fires, and then man comes in, don't like the fire, call the fire department, there's a fire there, the fire department put the fire down, so the fire does not burn the little uh, bit of uh, dry leaves, and then there's more, and there's more, and there's more, and there's more, and then you have like... A, tons of dry leaves and then one little fire comes and you have the big fires. So uh, sometimes the best way actually for someone that is recovering, instead of coming in, you know, stepping in and trying to, because a for, after forest fire, naturally if you men don't do anything, slowly uh, sprouts start come out. Now we as mental health professionals, as we see sprouts coming out, we want to come in and help. You know? And then we're stepping out in sprouts and trying to help with the little sprout that we saw. Often the best thing to do is actually put like a CSI caution tape around it. And often let the person recover in their journey. And we are there, not as a sage on stage, but as a guide on the side, right? Uh, so I want to tell you how to, I know it's getting depressing. You feel like drinking is Friday already. 
so it's a hope, uh, trust me, the second hour will be a lot more uplifting, and you won't get out of here thinking like you need a beer. <coughs> Which I think they serve downstairs, I'm not sure. Um, so, Pat Diggins is one of our uh, heroes. Pat, Pat was uh, uh, diagnosed very young, young age, and she was in a mental hospital. Uh, and it's funny that the one person that brought hope to her it was not any of the mental health workers. It was actually, it was actually the lady that would come in and clean the room and make her bed in the, in the hospital. That was the person that gave her hope. And it's funny because I had a surgery a couple of years ago where I had to take a chunk of my ins out. And I was at UCLA uh, 11 days inpatient. And, uh, you know, in the back and do anything, all this stuff, like you feel helpless, like the first question I ask you, right? Um, and it was funny that none of the docs, none of the nurses, none of the people really connect with me. The person that connect with me it was the cleaning lady because I speak Spanish, right? She was the one that kind of got to know me and my kids and she would see me every day and I look forward to see her. She gave me hope, not as much as my docs and my and my staff. Um, so Pat said that was the orderly that actually got her out. And she also said that, you know, Bill uh, Anthony, which is a godfather of recovery in the 80s, Boston University, uh, he says that for every, every recovery journey, everybody has at least someone with them. And I work with a lot with the homeless in LA. Often in LA, the homeless, the someone is actually a dog or a cat. Um, and for some people, that someone is God. But in recovery, there's always someone that went through the journey with you and mostly like a family member. For her, it was uh, her grandma, who after she got discharged from the hospital, the grandma would come to the, her room. And every day she would knock and say, Pat, I'm going to the grocery store. You want to come with me? And she said, no. Pat, I'm going every day. One day she said, fine. And she goes. And that was the first time she got out of the house. And then she, you know, and she had what she called the, the Diet Coke and Oprah syndrome, which is like she spent a whole day drinking Diet Coke and watching Open TV. And then, then she decided to do it, to the move. She took one college class and then another college class, another, and then she got a PhD in psychology. And then now she runs Common Ground and she goes around the world talking about her life experience. We have Common Ground in some of the LA programs. Uh, it's a very cool tool that clients come in and they, they do. They meet with the. They'll be cool for you to check it out. Uh, they meet with the. It's like a software thing, and they uh, they ask questions for the doc to know before they meet with the doc, and they have this this statement they do that for me the most important thing is not the voices in my head, but to be present for my grandkids, uh, kids in there, or whatever. You know, so so they go in like almost like a power statement, like like a job interview kind of thing. This is what is important to me. You know. It's not the so it's pretty cool. So Pat says this: uh, you don't have the power to change someone, but you do have the power to change the environment, including the human interactive environment, culture, which is the person is surviving. So anybody who's married here, you know, you know, you, you think like, oh, I'll change her, or I'll change him, and you know, you know, it, people don't change that, but you can change the environment, you can change the way you interact with people and facilitate their own change. Uh, and how you, pro how you do program culture, you know? 
Program culture is transmitted through rules, routines, the environment, like I said, but also through what we call uh, touch points. Um, so a touch point is a moment that you are fully, you mindful, you aware when you interact with someone. When I used to uh, uh, run crisis centers in San Diego, we had this thing that we did shift change, and then before we go out to the milieu, we would huddle in a group, and we look at each other, and we say, showtime, and then we go, I don't know, maybe it's like a TV show. This was in the 90s, I don't know. Uh, and that got to me because that was kind of a way, like a, a ritual for me to kind of like wash out my, I need to pay that bill, I need to do that, I need to go to, you know. I would just be present for the clients. And it's funny because later on, when I started working FSP type of programs and driving around LA, driving around San Diego, uh, before going to someone's house, I would actually park the car, I'll put the retro viewer mirror like in my face, I'll look at me and say, showtime. And then I'll go out to the, <laughs> it was kind of my way to do it. Uh, but touch point is that full, you know, you're there with the person. Uh, you're not like, oh, let's see, uh, Let's see about the board and care. You know, I'm going to call the board and care for you. And just hold on a second. I just got a text from my wife here. <laughs> oh, crap, my kids like how to school kid. Anyhow, so the board and care. Oh, hold on a second. This is my boss calling me here. You know, so these are the you know enemies of connection, right? You think that disconnects you, this disconnect you with people. Um, so in, if you're mindful, you are aware of these five things. And this is the, today's presentation is on those five awarenesses. And this is how we build the culture. Telecare is actually split. We believe the, the recovery system is split in two. We do a two-day training on this. So for a two-hour training, I can only do the first half, which is the culture. The second half is the conversations. Conversations are what we do with the clients. I'll talk at, at the end, I'm just going to touch base on the conversations. Uh, conversations while other people call interventions our conversations and this is the culture is the this is not just among you and clients is among you and your co-workers um, so aware of power the power differential you know like when I got up on the table you know so that's the the that you were the bar you were the one with the job you know like you're the one with the power pretty much uh, and power is invisible to those who have it so we get we get there uh, respect Respect is almost like the intervention, and dignity what is the outcome. Uh, uniqueness we talk about, right? The, a little bit that you know people are unique, and if we don't see them through these these symptomatology lenses, we just see them as we are weird, pretty much. Uh, motivation, which is you know there's. Uh, uh, I think it's in Chinese. I can't remember. There's one one language that the motivation is is, is like a, a ing type of word because motivation is never static. There's never like you are motivated. You know, you're always motivating. It's always a window moving, and you're always hitting and and missing. It's a hit and miss. And the judgment. And this is not. I don't want you to walk out of here thinking you're gonna be like you know Jesus. You're gonna be like Mother Teresa. You're not gonna make judgments of people is the idea that you will make judgments. You just need to be aware of the judgments you make. You're judging me right now. We are judging each other. Human beings are like that. You know, it's like since cave time, you know, we have to judge. Otherwise, you know, cavemen could not like see the beast coming like, hmm, is this beast going to kill me? Or is it, you know, 
around. So we have this, like, I see someone, I put them in a box, and like, scary dude, go to the other side of the street, you know? And so we, we make judgments. We just need to be aware of our own judgments. I think I'm going good on time. If this is, uh, so uh, the main thing, if you just like, for your brother to just walk in, so this is it. This is it. If you, one thing you're going to remember from the two hours, this is the slide. So you walk in the right time. Uh, so basically, if you don't know, if you don't know a technique, if you don't know any EBP, if you didn't go to school, you didn't, you don't, I don't know, you don't know, you just got a job and you just want to do something, here's what you got to do. You got to listen with the curiosity and desire to understand. And here's why I messed up and I still messed up. I'm a clinician. I got, like I said, I have a PhD in psychology. I have two masters in psychology. I spent my whole life thinking myself as a clinician. I watch TV show and I'm like, okay, borderline personality disorders. Like, okay. you know, like I, I diagnose everybody walking down the street. All right, there we go. Histrionic right there. Right there you know. that's, that's who I am. It's like my defense mechanism uh, because I am myself extremely uh, obsessive, compulsive. and So I, and I still do this, I listen with curiosity and a desire to explain. Because, like, I'm here. That's why I'm like, I didn't go into, like, doing therapy. I like to talk, you know. Uh, we all, because you go to some trainings, because you read some books, you think you know. You don't. Just listen with curiosity and desire to understand, not to explain. We'll start in power and then we'll take a break. Um, I love this American thing. Uh, don't ask a fish. I love sayings from all cultures. This is a cool one. Don't ask a fish to describe water. Uh, so if, uh, what's, what's Nemo's best friend, Dory? Dory. Dory? So if Dory goes to Nemo like, hey, Nemo, tell me about water. Nemo is going to be like, well, I don't know, because everything is water. You take Nemo out of the water, all Nemo will talk about will be water. If Nemo talk, really. Sorry, Nemo doesn't. Fish don't talk, but I, you probably know that. Uh, <coughs> that's power. People do, that have power don't see the power they have. Uh, in racial power, for example, there's a great experience. Uh, Peggy McIntosh, it's called the Band-Aid experience. It's a racial power experience. You can do it yourself if you go to a foreign country. Go straight to the pharmacy, ask for a Band-Aid. Put the Band-Aid on yourself. As close your color of your skin is to the Band-Aid color, more power you have at that place. The skin, the Band-Aid, in the old days, I'm, I'm, I'm 52. I'm 52 in two days. After this, I'm going to get a tattoo to celebrate. <laughs> uh, uh, in my old days, they used to call skin color Band-Aid. Did they call that in America too? Yeah. Skin color, but it's not very PC to do that now, but that's pretty much what it is. It's the skin color of the people with power. That's color yeah. so, uh, so power is invisible to those who have it. Now, you're locked up in a mental hospital. La Casa, uh, View Heights, uh, Ola Vista, any of the IMD here. I tell you that you have to wake up at 8.30 and have to be at groups at 9. You have to take your meds every day. You have to eat a certain time. You, have, you know, like, you got no power. Oh, but I like steak and lobster for breakfast. Well, too bad. 
I like to sleep during the day and stay up at night. I like to shower only once a month. Got no powers. So prison and uh, mental hospital, locked mental hospitals, no power. And some of those people, they literally have 12 powers taken away from them. That's LPS conservatorship, right? The, 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 it tells you which powers got taken away and the check. Can I enter a contract? Can I drive a car? And so far. So all powers are taken away. What is the last power that you still got? That you had it since you were, since you were a baby. That one too, but so I, you know, you can tell me I have to take my meds, but I can punch you in the face. You can tell me that, you know, I have to go to group, but I can call you some names that you never heard before. <laughs> you can call me, you know, you can tell me in jail what they do. They call um, the, I think it's gasser. It's like they pee or shit in a in a bag, and they and they throw it a. Uh, guesser, there you go. Uh, uh, they can do that, right? So I can throw feces on your face, you know. That's the most primitive type of power. You took my powers away, that one you haven't taken away. Now I'm out in the community, right? I got out of uh, Twin Towers, 2 o'clock in the morning with 200 bucks in my pocket. That's what they do to you. The only good thing around is Philippi's, the sandwich, but it's closed at that time, so... Uh, you spend like, I don't know, 10 years in prison? I don't know. You spend a lot of time in prison. You feel like powerless. There's a dude selling power in powder right in the corner. One little smoke in the crack pipe. One shot of tequila. The power all comes back, right? I feel powerful again. You feel worse later, but and then you just go for more. So violence, everybody wants to be powerful, right? Especially in California, like the, the culture of celebrities, like I always think about the Kardashians. What the hell do those women do? Well, how, how, how come they have power? Uh, everybody needs to feel powerful. But drugs, violence is a way to, it's bogus power, right? So you all mental health people, you all social workers, at, you know, all, the, all kumbaya, oh, let's empower people. You all think we empower people, BS. You know, your job is not to empower people. Your job is to make power visible so people can empower themselves. You might have the power to say no to the crack pipe, but you don't have the power to go visit your wife in Palmdale, visit your kids and wife in Palmdale because she has a restraining order against you, and if you go there, you're going to go back to prison. You might have the power to move from Long Beach to West L.A., but you don't have the power to go to Orange County because that's against your parole, that's a parole violation and you're gonna go back to prison. So where you have power, where you don't. And then you do it. What do we do with our AB Online program? It's pretty cool. We do a, map, a Google Maps and we put like, you're here, here's where you live. Here is a antisocial place. This is a liquor store, I used to sell drugs and used to get drunk. Another antisocial place, your cousin who's selling drugs and is asking you to come over. Here's a pro-social place, a church that used to be involved before you start using drugs. Here's another pro-social place. Uh, is your cousin, the other cousin who's clean and sober and is offering you a job. So you got you here, anti-social, anti-social, pro-social, pro-social. Here's the map. When you wake up tomorrow morning, make a plan. What are you going to do? Uh, and here's some ways that we, so we make power visible to people. And here's the way that we mental health professionals uh, we'll take a break in a second, but I just want to sh uh, take a break with this slide. 
If I go to any chart today, I'm going to see these words in the charts. And even telecare. I don't think telecare is like heaven, right? A village, telecare. You're going to see these words. This is the way that we mental health professionals take power over people. You know? Uh, my favorite is the diagnosis one. The people, so I was a therapist in Brazil. Excuse me. And... Uh, I went to work in this place called ISIS Center. They changed the name in San Diego. ISIS Center in San Diego was a crisis center in, in San Isidro, right on the border. ISIS Center, yeah, they just changed the name. Uh, at the ISIS Center, uh, <coughs> I walk in, 16 beds, 16 people there. Eight people has borderline personality disorder. I mean, I have a, I'm a psychologist. I study as like, this is a, this is amazing. I never seen someone with borderline personality disorder in my whole career. Must be the water in San Isidro, maybe? I don't know. It's like, wow. So I start to read the charts, right? There's no symptoms of. And then it's like, what? And then I meet with people, and then I say, hey, how about uh, Joe over there? Mary is like, oh, she's just borderline. Oh, and how about uh, Louise here? That's another raging borderline. I was like, oh, and then I realized, oh, borderline is not a diagnosis. It's lingo for I don't want to deal with that person. They're too obnoxious. Um, so diagnosis is often used not doing the intention of diagnosis was actually uh, to be able to two professions to communicate and kind of uh, simplify their communication, but is used now as like a, you know, I don't want to talk about this. Uh, Denial is another great one, you know, Freudian concept, denial. You know, Freud, Freud uh, the guy was laying down on the couch, and the guy says, uh, I had a sexual dream last night. And then he says, it wasn't with my mom. And that's what Freud realized, that denial is that you have a bad thought, like having sex with your mom, and then you can't deal with that thought, and then you deny, right? So if I say, I'm not fat, I'm just big bone." Um, if his denial is for a moment, I thought, I am, fat. Oh, crap, I am fat. No, I'm not. I'm big bone. But if I really don't know, if I'm pre-contemplating, right, about drugs and alcohol, I don't think I have a problem. I just, I, I only drink socially. I'm just a very social guy, right? <laughs> if I do think that, that's not denial. Denial, you have to accept it and then deny we often tell people they're pre-contemplators, they're in denial. They're not in denial. They haven't got there yet. There's two steps to get to denial. Uh, compliant, you know. I'm sure if I go to your uh, medicine cabinet under your, under your kitchen, I'm going to find a bunch of antibiotics that as soon as you got better, you stop taking it. Everybody's, you know. I, I have severe asthma. Every year, I stop my meds for a week. And I wait, hoping that my asthma is gone. And start coming back, I start again. Maybe it's a delusion. Well, what the hell? It's my body. I don't want to take meds for the rest of my life. I'm hoping one day, whoo, asthma is gone. So people, people should have the right to do that. Um, so this is the stuff that we take power over people by writing. So the chart, there's this, uh, this guy, Foucault, Michel Foucault, is a philosopher. He says that psychiatry... Is the, big, is the end of the dialogue with the madman and the beginning of the monologue about the madman. Uh, charts are pretty much uh, just the bad 
stuff about someone. It's a bad narrative about someone. It's all the screws ups about someone. You know, if you have a chart on me, you would have a chart that I set my mom's kitchen on fire when I was six years old. That I was in jail three times for selling drugs. That you know, uh, that I left my parents' house when I was 13. You know, you're gonna have all the crap about my life. You're not gonna have that I cook a mean lasagna. You're not gonna have the, you know, that's all this good stuff. We have one program in Take a break. We have a program in Northern California, which is with people with developmental disabilities. When they leave the program to the next level of care, they don't carry. We don't have charts with people. We have portfolios, and the portfolios is like a, it has like their their screenshot in front, and it's all the good stuff about them. So then when they go into the next, the next provider freaks out. Where's the behavioral? What is what is the problems? What is the symptoms? What is lack? And then you go. Know, he's he plays guitar really good. He's, uh, you know, it's like uh, more on the power. So the you know the when you power is invisible to those who have it. There's this. Uh, uh, I have an uncle in Brazil who uh, says uh, when we have like tense racial discussions, right? Uh, he's a white guy, and he says, uh, "Oh, I see no color. You know, everybody's the same to me, right?" And my mom like whispers, "Racist," you know, <laughs> which is, you know, the idea that often people with power cannot see the power they have, right? So, a lot of I'm not saying that you know people that make racist comments are not racist. I'm just saying that sometimes people are just not aware of the white privilege that they have in this country. Um, sometimes they're not. I mean, there's privilege that I was not aware, and I was made aware of it. I remember uh, after the Trayvon Martin shooting, Obama went on TV, and he talked about how uh, black men have this conversation with their uh, teenage black kids at a certain age, when they become a teenager, about how to behave in public places and things like that. Which is like, it broke my heart because I thought, I don't need to have a conversation with my kid. Mm-hmm. Right? My kid can act however he wants, I guess. Uh, so that's a privilege that I had, I didn't know. So privileges, usually uh, people are invisible to them. The person that has, don't have power, the power less is the one that's going to point it to the, to the differential. Right? Um, and I love how some uh, every subculture takes words that are loaded with power to hurt people. They strip the power differential out of the word, and they use it among themselves. Gay men do this. Black kids or black men do this. You know, they use words that no other group can use it. But they, among themselves, because there's no power differential, right? I can call you that, you can call me that. Uh, uh, so you know, the, so our words are loaded with power. How we call someone, what we write about someone in their chart. So their chart, your chart on someone is a monologue, your monologue about that person. Um, is your narrative about that person. And a lot of people, especially minorities, they were born with a narrative waiting for them. And we are often just reinforcing that. So your job is actually to break the narrative. You know? 
to give people the power that belongs back to them. Now, let's do a little quick exercise on judgment. So that was power. Be aware of power when with people. When you're with clients, they're the one, they're powerless. So ask them, you know. Uh, do, do you, the clients can drink? Uh, do you have a staff-only bathroom at your place? Yeah, yeah do, right? Some people don't, some people, yeah, I say that. And you ask people, why? Why? Oh, because get down to it, they think, oh, clients are dirty, right? So um, one of the places I was doing this training, uh, there was a, a, a tape on the floor. It was a telecare place. It was a big tape on the floor. I thought, you know, kind of ghetto, you know, like telecare has money. You can, you know, is it the corporate? What is fixing this? And they said, oh, no, no, no. This line is for the clients. The clients can go all the way up to the line, but they cannot pass the line. Like, why? Guess why? Because of uh, HIPAA, you know, like there's computers over there. They can see stuff. Guess what the clients did all day long? <laughs> they stayed right there. And we asked the clients, hey, guys, how are we going? Oh, yeah, yeah, no, we cannot go. They, they, get, they freak out if we pass there. And it's like, if I'm a client there, I'll be spending the whole day just like, <laughs> you know, putting the feet in there. Uh, so staff-only bathrooms uh, in staff-only areas. And even more, like for people that spend a lot of time in prison, they come to some mental health places, and the first thing they see is not a person. It's a metal detector. And then someone with a gun. How, how does that tell you that, you know, that person trusts you? Do you feel like coming up and open up to someone that just check you for if you have guns on? So, then judgment. I know I've been talking to you guys for a while now. You figure out that I'm a very liberal kind of guy, and you know, so you're not you're not gonna gonna make any comments here. But please. Just let it go. Let it go and make judgments. Because you're going to make judgments, right? Don't think that you're going to be like Mother Teresa and like walk out like, oh, everybody's, you know. You see this person. First thing that comes to your mind. Go ahead. Homeless, obviously, right? Homeless guy. Spiritual homeless guy, like that. Tired? Hungry, a black person. So it's a black guy who is hungry and tired and is homeless, but is spiritual. But he has made a call because those glasses are pretty nice. <laughs> so we, that's what we do. We judge, right? We, we see people, we put them in a box. Oh, Brazilian. This guy, good soccer player. No, I suck at soccer. I'm bad, bad at basketball. Oh, bossa nova, samba, I hate the crap. I like hip hop, I like uh, heavy metal. You know, so you look at someone, oh, you know, oh, black, oh, lots of next of kin, oh, Latino, probably a lot of siblings and somatic, oh, you know, you go to those cultural competence trainings and you learn everything about Asian Americans, right? Which is BS. Those trainings actually make it worse. They make it worse because when you meet someone, you should go with your non knowledge. Right? Confucius say, not having knowledge and hold on to that not knowledge, that's wisdom. When you meet someone, but we human beings were so anxious. I meet a person like, I can't stay looking at someone and not knowing anything about them. So I just start to fill up. 
Oh, Asian. Oh, that, you know, like, and I start, oh, good at math. Uh, you know, like all the stuff that you think, right? All the prejudice and uh, if I could just hold on to that non-knowledge and ask, you know. So instead of cultural competence, we should be culturally humble. should be cultural humility, right? Uh, so same thing with judgment, you know, but we do, we do judge. So you see this guy, you make all those judgments. When in reality, you know, a bovine finds safety and solace with her shepherd father. Yeah, you probably thought you were like in uh, East L.A., but you were actually in, in India somewhere. <coughs> so we all make judgments. Hey, stereotypes, stereotype, uh, stereotypes are cool. Stereotypes are awesome. But only one of those guys is a convicted felon. <laughs> If I hold to, to register a uh, house tonight, he has a party tonight, by the way. He only invited me, he didn't invite anybody else. Uh, and I go to the kitchen and I see, you know, I don't know, this is Noop Lion. I don't know, this is Martha Stewart, you know. I just look at two people, like, and then, uh, you know, some black dude with a cornrows and some woman. That, no offense if anybody's from Orange County and if you're a wife, but looks like an Orange County wife to me. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I see these guys in the kitchen and I say, what's up with those dudes over there, you know, and then he says, oh, one of them is a convicted felon. <laughs> Who do you think I'm going to think is a convicted felon? Who are you going to think is a convicted felon if you didn't know these people? So, yeah, we make judgments. <laughs> we make judgments all the time. And it's, again, it's not for you to, it's not for you to not be judgmental, it's just for you to check your judgment. This is us at the, what is this place called again? Lasking what? What's the name of this place? Lasking Center. Here's us at the Lasking Center after the conference downstairs. You know. Here's Lisa. Lisa's more to the side. You know. Chardonnay, you know, like analyzing us. It's cool, right? We're all having fun, getting loose. And this is me and my buddies just down the street smoking some crack. And This is not legal, so... These people are doing the same thing. These people are doing the same thing. Now this one, there's not a lot of taboo. They're mostly white. I don't know, that guy's black, but uh, you know, it's just—it's not about the race. It's, uh, it's just kind of the, you know, this is cool. This is acceptable. Many of you probably be doing this after this. I for sure will, because it's my birthday for you. I don't, don't remember. Uh, yeah, but hey, why not this, right? It, what is what is wrong with this? Nothing is is our taboos, is our religion, is how mom and dad taught us, is our own morals. Are you able to put that aside and work on someone? Are you able to walk into a house and you know there's a crack pipe right there, and in me with someone? You know, and if you're not, you're not. Just be real with yourself, right? Don't be ask yourself. You might say, I work with folks that are in recovery. And they say, I can't work with that guy because he's actually using and I'm, I'm going through a rough time in my life right now. So can someone else visit him? You know, be, be real with yourself. And some people have some issues with some other coaches, you know, like be, know your sh- stuff. <laughs> Look at the camera and uh, know your sh- stuff. Uh, motivation. You know, I saw this video of the horse, whisper, the real horse whisperer, 
and uh, it was it was a, 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 a 10 minutes video of uh, it looks like 10 12 guys breaking a horse and then a five minutes video of the horse whisper breaking a horse the eight minute videos with the guy it looks painful to the guys and to the horse the traditional way to break a horse you know you pretty much you know get the horse down to um, and then the horse whisper it was a trippy thing the dude just goes in and he start to caress the hair and whispering in the ear and the horse gets a little and then the horse slowly is like coming down and after a few minutes whispering and caressing he goes and jumps on the horse and it's like he broke the horse with no pain and um, I always think of motivation that way you know um, uh, you know I'm not there's no time here but the idea or motivations for us strong related to two studies two folks two theories one is the motivation interview in YouTube I'm sure you all heard about it so the idea of motivation interviewing, the idea of bringing reality through the back door, the idea that cornering someone into recovery is not going to help. It's going to make it worse. Um, and then the other is Prochaska and the Clemente, the idea of stages of change, right? The pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparation. And reality is that 75% of the people that are actively using drugs and alcohol and is messing up with their lives, uh, they're pre-contemplators. They don't think it's a problem. And we always go with treatment for people that are ready for treatment, right? So I told you, you know, like, I'm fat. I know I'm fat. So, but I say I didn't know I'm fat. I say I'm like, I'm in denial, right? I'm like, I'm just big bong, like Cartman in South Park. I'm just big bong. <laughs> uh, and you come to me and say, hey, Marcelo, here's a 24-hour fitness membership. I want you to work out, you know. I'll say thank you. I'll go downstairs and say, anybody has an in and out voucher that I can switch for a membership? Uh, uh, because you came to me thinking I'm in an action phase. I'm pre-contemplating. I don't even, you know, I'm not fat. You know, I spent my whole life, you know, struggling to eat. Now that I got some money, I want to eat the best stuff, <laughs> you know. So, we cannot push or leave some money to motivation, but we, we can with understanding create a condition that potentially excite motivation. Um, here's one thing about uh, motivation. I'll, I'll talk about the, uh, the 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 hope as as energy at the end, but this part here um, that. The, you, know, you know the carrot and stick approach, right? The, the, you, you do this, you get this. You know, we do that often with FSP clients. Like, you stay clean and sober for a month, we'll take you out shopping for jackets. You stay in this boarding care and don't get hospitalized for two weeks, I'll buy you makeup. You, if you calm down, I'll get you a cigarette. We don't do that anymore because now it's against the DMH laws, but in the old days we used to do that. <laughs> I used to have a, a carton in my car. And it was like, you know, dude, chill out and I'll get you a cigarette. Uh, so that's, that's really coercion, right? Really, you like really, tit, in America you say tit for tat, I think, right? Yeah. You do this, I get that. 
That is external motivation. So here's the thing. The, the, people, the, the researchers show that if you just reinforce, external reinforce a behavior, within three months after you stop the reinforcement, the behavior will come back. So my kid, you know, he had to, uh, my kids are Jewish, my, my wife is Jewish, and they were in a Jewish temple for preschool, and it was too expensive and too many Jewish holidays. And then, so I want to move them to a public uh, school. Uh, but the public school, he had to be potty trained. And he was not yet, and I had like two weeks to party train this dude. And I was like, and we went to Mexico for vacation. So I, I got the M&M thing, and I waited everybody done this. So it's like one M&M if you pee-pee in the party, five M&Ms if you poo-poo in the party. So my kid is very smart. He learned how to control his bladder, so he'll pee a little bit, and then come like, hey, M&M. And then you pee a little bit more, and like, yep, yeah, another one, right? But if I just left at the M&M's, I don't want to have a 25-year-old guy on a date. And, you know, like, he's like peeling his pants because he has no chocolate around. So uh, three months later, the behavior is going to disappear. But I built an intrinsic reinforcer at the moment I started. When I saw, his name is Gael. When I saw Gael peeing, the door, I left the door open just one, just for him. Uh, he's peeing, I'm passing by, I say, look at Gael, peeing like a big boy, standing up, wow. And then you'll be like, yeah, yeah, I'm a big boy. Got to the point that I don't need to do the M&Ms anymore. Just the feeling like a big boy was enough. So it's okay, the carrying stick. It's okay. It's really coercion. But it's, you know, like the, you do this and you get that. But... At the moment you introduce the external reinforcer, you have to introduce an internal intrinsic reinforcer as well. Because once you take out the external, the behavior is going to come back. Unless they found themselves internal motivation to do that. So that's motivation. I mean, you know, all of this takes like two hours, each one of them, and just doing them in five minutes. Respect and dignity. So... Uh, <clears throat> This guy comes in, uh, a B109 guy, so he's in prison. He was in prison for 20 years. He's like 47, so he went to prison when he was 27. Uh, you spend that much time in prison, you got to get a little cozy with the gangs, right? So if you're black, you got to get, you know, have some friends in the black gang. If you're Latino with the Latino gang. If you're white, you got to get some acquaintances on the white supremacist side. Otherwise, your 20 years are not going to be very pleasurable, I'll tell you that. Uh, so this guy got more than acquainted. He had the uh, spiderweb tattoos, which is the white supremacist tattoos, right? Spiderweb tattoos in the, how do you call this? Elbow. Elbow. And he had a swastika on his uh, temple. He's a bigger, bigger guy than me, bigger guy than me, full tattoos, and he comes in, in the office, right, um, with his mom. Most old ladies bring her in. He has sunglasses on. I used to be the, the administrator for the program, so I come out and I used to greet everybody who come in. It was the mailman, whoever will go in and like, welcome, welcome brother, welcome sis. So he comes in, I go, welcome brother, and then after I thought, you know, brotherhood is not a good, not a good, <laughs> not a good introduction. But and I put my hand and he didn't move. Like, oh, again, he's gonna do the psych thing. He's not gonna give my. And then he slowly takes his hands out. He shakes my hand. And the moment he touches my hand, he starts crying. I walk out. This guy, Tim Lee, comes in. Thomas Mayo, he passed away. Thomas was a peer. 
He was addicted to crack. He was homeless. And he was a team lead for the Abandon Night program. Tom is going to do the assessment with this guy. He goes in. By now, the guy's crying more. The, guns come out, the guy come out bawling. And I go to Tom and say, dude, I swear to God, I didn't do anything. The only thing I did was I shake his hand. And he said, that's it. You're not allowed to shake hands in prison. This guy has been in prison for 20 years. He's been out for three days. The way that he looked, I doubt anybody shake his hand in the last three days. You probably the first hand he shakes in over 20 years. That amount of respect gave him so much dignity that overwhelmed him. So we believe touch points are points like that. Moments that you are there, you're genuine, you're mindful, you're in the connection, and you can do good and you can do bad, right? You can, I don't know if you ever went to work and then like you walk in and when a coworker like goes like this and then, and then you, and then she just, it was something fell, it was something in her eye, but but you just saw the actual guy like this, and then you press like, that woman just roll her eyes at me? I don't even know the woman. I just started here. What the, f-? you know? And then you just messed up your day? That was a touch point, a bad one, but that was a touch point. But the person was not mindful, or maybe she, she said, hey, hey, I was not rolling the eyes at you. Something fell from the sky, you know? Uh, so those are touch points. I, I used to like to say that we go around in the field and we just, you know, drive by to touch points, you know. It's not very good when I do presentation for just as involved folks. Uh, so that's respect and dignity. Uh, so it's an environment, like I talked in the beginning, it's an environment that's free, you know, there's less judgment as, po- as possible and people feel accepted. Places like Homeboy Industries, places like the village, but also places places that also you go in and they look like you. I open a lot of places. I open over 12 different programs in LA. Uh, and I'm the guy that goes out and I have to find the furniture and find the stuff. And you know, like it's not just hiring the people, but it's also, you know, decorate the place, right? And I tell you, I try to find pictures of brown and black people to put on walls. And only black person I find was either Kobe Bryant or Bob Marley. And, uh, and <laughs> And Latino is always Cesar Chavez or Che Guevara, right? You never find a black couple or a Latino couple dancing or walking. Someone that's not famous, like you go to Bed and Bath Beyond, whatever, tons of different family pictures, but you never see brown and black families, normal people, right? Uh, So uh, having a, a place that welcome, but like I said, if you work in the field, it's even harder because then you go into their communities and you're trying to activate their communities. There's a guy, a guy called Bruce Anderson. He has this place called Community Activation, right? This is amazing. Uh, he's not in mental health, but he talks about that in mental health, for first, for many, many years, we thought that we're changing the people that we serve. In the 80s to now, we got the courage to say, we are changing with the people. You know, you know, you're not the only one changing when I do this work. I'm changing with you. We have that courage now. But, five o'clock, I go home, and you go back to your life, and it's not enough. So it's not enough to, to the individual to change. It's not enough for us to have the courage to say that we are changing too. We got to change the world around. We have to change the community around. One taco shop at a time, one landlord at a time, one family member at a time, one friend of yours at a time. You know, slowly you change the community. You have to activate the community because. Just this, like two, three hours of billable minutes that you do with them, 
it's not going to do it. Sorry. Uh, and the uniqueness. Seeing a person, who they are, accepting who they are. Um, labels. You know, the, the one thing about uniqueness, too, going back to the identity thing, is that um, the, I, I love this thing they had the, the, with the gay and lesbian movement. Um, I forgot the name, but it's videos on YouTube of regular gay and lesbian folks, like a mailman or like a, and it says, it gets better. Because if you just have Ellen DeGeneres and, you know, oh, it gets better. Yeah, for you, that's tons of money, you know. And uh, in, in mental health, it's the same thing, you know. We think about the, uh, what's the, you know, we think about Nathan, which is not, Nathan's actually not that, doing that great, but from the soloist, you know, the, uh, we think about the guy from The Beautiful Mind, right? The, we think about, like, these geniuses, right? If you got diagnosed with a mental illness, you're not going to think of the geniuses from The Beautiful Mind. You're going to think of the homeless guy that you drove by in your way here, you know. So the idea is that you have, on the, so in the gay and lesbian movement, they have people like you and me that say, hey, hang in there, it gets better. So the idea for people with mental illness too, that you know they need to be seen, and it gets better for them as well. But you know we don't have that much of a you know society sees them as a burden, and that's through the labels. They are mentally ill nobodies, right? Uh, and then don't assume, ask. That's what we talked about that before. So program is the that is the part of the culture, which is the program being the primary intervention. The uniquenesses, everybody's unique, you know. So before you, before diagnosis, this would be just a trait. But after diagnosis, it becomes a symptom. So you need to be aware that often many of the things that you see as symptom is just a trait of the individual. Power, be aware of power. In situations that you're going to find yourself, most of the time, you're the one with the power. You do want to have the power to discharge the person. You have the power to write some nasty stuff in their chart that can mess up their life forever. You have the power to to keep them out of places. We have the power to report them. You know, countries where I'm from, Brazil, uh, Argentina, many South American countries, we do not trust social workers because social workers are the people that come and take your kids away from you. Social workers are the people that are doing the dictatorship. They work in cahoots with the government to put poli politicians in mental hospitals because they're political prisoners. So we, when we migrate here, you know, I see a social worker, I, you know, I'm sorry, that, that was my experience. Because I've been uh, brutalized by, by uh, police in Brazil, today, if I'm driving, when I was driving here, I see a police car or I hear a siren, my heart beats faster. I start sweat because you know that was my experience. Uh, judgment, we just did the judgment, so you got that in your mind. Motivation and respect. If you have these awarenesses amongst yourselves, you're gonna produce a culture that is already the primary intervention. So this is pretty much the presentation, but I wanna give you a teaser on the second part, which we're not gonna go in depth today, which is the conversations which is the, what you would say, interventions. This is the stuff we do with the clients. Now, actually, 
the programs that I have, we did with ourselves for almost a year before we went and did with the clients. But this the idea is to do this with the clients. So let me pick someone out there. Tell me, uh, what's your name again? I can, I need new glasses. Jess, Jessica? Yeah. Oh, damn. That'll be easy to remember. Uh, Jessica, tell me a faraway place that you wanted to be. You wanted to go. A faraway place that you wanted to visit. Yeah. South Korea. All right. So South Korea is Jessica recovery, like cure. Like she gets to South Korea, she's recovered, ED at the end. She's cured. Close your ears for a little bit. She might never get there. Okay. The idea is that recovery journey, what you are here to do with folks is to help them in their recovery journey, is to help Jessica in the journey from UCLA to South Korea. Will she get to South Korea? Doesn't matter. The idea is not to get to South Korea. The idea is to help on the journey to South Korea. We all have our journeys. We all had dreams of what we wanted to be. Some of us made exactly what where we thought we would be when you were six, seven years old. I thought I was going to be a cop. <laughs> Far from that. <laughs> That's how I went. I almost went in the opposite direction. Um, so, you know, the idea is that recovery is not your jo- your job on helping someone in, men- in the recovery of mental illness is not to get them to Korea but to help them on the journey from here to Korea. And, and on the way to Korea, Jessica might, I don't know, swing by Tibet and say, hey, this is better than Korea. I'm going to just stay here, right? Who knows where that journey would take you. So in that journey, we have five conversations we do with folks. And depending, we can do each one of them separately. There's no order. Uh, we often start with that first one there, the identity, but the vehicle, the vessel, the boat, the airplane that to get to Korea is exploring identity. Who the hell is Jessica? Conversations about exploring identity. And if we have, I don't think we're going to have time, but I, was, I, I could give you some examples. But pretty much how, you know, working your identity, your life story, who are you, right? Uh, knowing your past will help you to, to help with your futures. Jews and Hawaiians, those are the two cultures that focus in their past so they can go forward to their future. Most cultures, they're blind to their past as they move to the future. That's why in the Torah is like, remember when, remember when, ever single thing, remember when, remember when, because it's always based in the past. Hawaiians are the same. They base... They're always looking in the past as they move forward through the future. Um, Awakening hope. So uh, there's a great book about awakenings by Oliver Sacks. He just passed out. He was a UCLA professor here. He wrote a book called The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. Um, great, great, Great writer. So his book's called Awakening. It became a movie with Robert De Niro and Robin Williams. Robert De Niro plays the patient. Robin Williams plays Oliver Sacks. Uh, it's the idea, and like I told you before, the idea that folks are pretty much awakening to life. You know, so hope 
is the energy, is the fuel, is the gasoline that's going to get you to South Korea or something that will produce less carbon imprint. Uh, <coughs> so the energy is hope, awakening hope. And often, Pat, you can say, sometimes you do not have the hope. So sometimes you is the one that holds the hope until the person is ready to take it back. It's like a pilot light. Remember in the old days, like the you take a shower, you had like the, pile, the pilot light, right? If the pilot light went out, oh my God, my dad would freak out. And like, ah, die out the pilot light. So you sometimes hold the pilot light, you know, until they're ready to take it back. Uh, awakening hope. And people like look older of those, for example, they have their hopes and dreams foreclosed on them. Foreclosed is a legal term for losing something they actually never had it. So older adults, it's not that they don't dream, they don't have dreams. The muscle that dreams got atrophied. Nobody asked them all their lives, what's your dreams? What's your hopes? If nobody asks you that, if you don't exercise that wanting something, you just, you lose it without even having it. So you get foreclosed on them. So that's why sometimes you go to older adults. So you go to some clients, to uh, folks with serious mental illness, and you ask, what's your goals? What's your dreams? And like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm good. Or, you know, where do you want to go to the store? You know, it becomes very concrete because, you know, they're, they're, no, they're not, their muscle, their, their dreams of good things has been atrophied. Making choices in a way here, you know, I do, I live in Culver City very close by. I always messed up and I always lose the exit. And, but every time I messed up, there's this like soothing women voice that says, it comes from the sky and says, recalculating. <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice in life? Every time life is messed up or every time you screw up, everything will froze and it will be like recalculating. So making choices and reducing harm is recalculating, right? In a way to... To South Korea, I don't know, it might get stopped by immigration somewhere, you know, there are some obstacles there. Uh, I don't know, you might start going and then you realize, I'm in Alaska, I'm, I went to the wrong place, right? So GPSing you there, and that's what people like people in this room do. We do a lot of this, we GPS people into their choices. And again, it's about, not about making good choices, it's about choice making skills. And to learn choice-making skills, one of the main things that you're going to have to do is making bad choices. You're going to have to screw it up to learn. And we have this paternalistic, you know, oh, no, 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 Jessica's going to screw up, you know. Don't, don't give all the money to her. She's going to screw up. Oh, she screwed up before, you know. And then, I don't know if you're going to take someone to South Korea, if you're going to hook up with a Korean person. If uh, take your cat, your dog, your god, uh, we are social beings. We we are always with people, and like I said, uh, sometimes animals. You know, I work with I work with a homeless guy who was dying, and uh, he was homeless, and no place would take him. Was trying to speed up the homeless section A, and the doctor said you have pretty much two two months to live if you stay in the street, and maybe six to a year if you find a place to live. And we find a place where we couldn't take the dog. And then he had to make a choice. And he chose to stay on the street. And he lived for actually four months in the street. And then like he got into the apartment. And then within two weeks he died. But 
just before he died, and I used to do training on death and dying, and so I was working with him. Um, and he said, I asked him, if you if we could go back in time, and you could, you know, if we have a time machine and we go back two or three months, would you make the same choice? And he said, yes. She's been with me through all my life. I'd rather stay with her two months on the street than a year with her in, you know, with, without her in an apartment. So he died happy with on the streets with his dog. So it's about making connection. There's always someone. Uh, there's always someone that was always there for them. Often a family, a mom, a sister. And the trippy thing is that will be my last story. Uh, it's about the the, the 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 gift that we have that we can uh, help these folks through this. I do believe that we all share what is called a core gift. Bruce Anderson also talks about core gift. Uh, so I come from the Guarani tribe, which is the second largest nation of tribes in South America. I, I'm part Guarani, I'm also part Shahua and Minwan, which are Patagonian Indians. They were the giant Indians that people thought because they used to be uh, seven foot tall. Uh, and the European man was like very shorter back then. So they thought the, the Patagonian Indians were giants, so that's the land of giants come from. Uh, and we are very, we are more red than we are brown, so we are truly red-skinned. Uh, so uh, the Guarani, there was one Guarani tribe, the Mibia Guarani. They are now in, they're, all Guaranis are dead by now, but there's some Mibia in Paraguay right now. The Mibia Guarani had this belief that uh, they were organized in this way. It was a chauvinistic society. Women had no rights. Children had no rights. Only people that had rights were men. But the, the elders, the council that made all the decisions, were only men that had one voice in their head. You had to have one voice in your head to be part of this executive committee kind of thing. And then the top people, the chief, the medicine man, the really top executive people, the senior VPs, right? They had to have more than one voice in their head. So schizophrenia in that society was like brownie points in your resume. You're going to go really far if you hear voices, especially if you hear more than one. Now, how did the Guarani believe the voices came about? The Guarani believed the voice, by, by the way, was either the voices of the, uh, the, the jaguar, which was the Guarani, do, the Guarani god. By the way, this is jaguar, and this is my African god, Shango. I'm a, I also worship African gods. Anyhow, uh, they believed that the Guarani, uh, when they had a, a near-death experience, or a loss of a loved one, or a, or a physical illness, some trauma, pretty much, and they survived the trauma, Either the jaguar or an ancestor spirit will come in and stay. But here's the thing. You survive, and it's not like, free to go, right? There's a payment. Because now you have a voice in your head, you're bound to help the village. The voice is something that you're going to give back to the village. It's the gift that keeps on giving, right? Bruce believed that we have a similar core gift. That we all went through something. Maybe you yourself has a men, have a mental illness. Maybe you have a family with a mental illness. Maybe you know, something happens in our lives that connect us with the same core gift. And that's why we're doing what we do. 
And we joke at Telecare, once you drink the Kool-Aid, there's no way out. So once I told you this stuff, and I do believe that you have this core gift, too late now, you already drink the Kool-Aid. <laughs> so the idea is that from this point on, you know, uh, you are using the resilience from your own personal trauma, from your own personal life, to help other people. And that's why you engage in this. And that is the love is the part that is going to get you moving. To, to end, I'm reading this book. It's really cool. It's called Sapiens. It's about the history of mankind. And how the, we always thought that, the, you know, there's the monkey and then the, you know, there's thing that the guy like this and then goes like this and like this. We thought it was an evolution, right? It was actually those are t- different kinds of homos. The homo sapien, the, the, the Neanderthal, you know. Those are just different kind of humans. And, and the, the, the last one, which is us, the homo sapiens, won the Neanderthal, which was one just before, or the, you know. Uh, because of language. And the reason that we, we survive and the Neanderthal didn't survive, people would think that because the, the, the language would tell you, um, hey, don't go to the lake, there's a lion there. Right? With Neanderthal couldn't do that. But reality is that it's not because we could communicate things that exist. The reason that we are still here, we are sapiens, because we communicate things that don't exist. The sapiens could have hope. The sapiens could say, let's hold on and let's, you know, let's get to an island. They went to Australia. Let's, you know, let's, let's get together. Let's organize. Let's do a boat and let's go there, you know, because they could talk about things. So instead of saying, hey, don't go to the lake. There is a lion there. They could say things such as, we are the same. We are part of the same family because we are descendants from the spirit of the lion, right? So it's hope that organize uh, is, is religion, obviously, and totems and things like that. Things that don't don't are not real. They organize people. So it's pretty much hope which made sapiens survive. And it's pretty much what I'm telling you is that the hope that we have for people that have lost their hope is what will get them going on in their journey. Thanks for not judging me too much, and uh, thanks for uh, hanging out this time, and I uh, really appreciate any questions that you might have. Or, uh, you wanna, do you need to say anything at the end? No? Right, so uh, Monday morning, just do one thing for me. Before you go to work, look yourself in the mirror and say, showtime. Thank you very much. <laughs>